Turn your Bible to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse number 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy. pray. So Than that's ever been. That you increase our concern and care for one another. Lord, I pray that we fall in love with each other in a manner that you have desired for your children. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, that's called phantom power, right, Seth? He hit the phantom switch. But last week, we seen what it meant to Paul's challenge was to walk worthy of the vocation in which we are called. When we looked at the text last week, we, we seen that Paul's challenge to us, the manifestation of us walking worthy, all for what? The spirit of unity would be manifested when we walk humbly amongst each other. He, he said to, in verse 2, with all lowliness, and meaning to be humble amongst each other. He said with all meekness, this is to be gentle amongst each other, long-suffering, meaning to be patient with one another, recognizing that we are 
all not the same, forbearing one another in love. This was the challenge that he put before the church at Ephesus. But how many of us know that you can be in a room surrounded by people who are patient, kind, and sweet, and very, very differently about what you believe. I have family who is some of the kindest, sweetest people that I know, but our viewpoints on life and faith are, are very different. So Paul's emphasis is, is that to say here in these four through six, it is to say all the more. It is more than just behavior that unifies a church. Beliefs matter. Verses 1 through 3 is the behavior, but verses 4 through 6 brings us to a doctrine that unifies the entire church together. He says here, the doctrine that unifies the local New Testament church is a church that believes that there is one God, a church that believes that there's one spirit, a church that believes there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. This is the doctrine of the local New Testament church. And as much as we strive to reach the world, we understand if we compromise the world, we have totally disrupted what verse number three says. That we not only walk in this way, but we believe these things as a whole because we are endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we are... Last week, we looked how we're walking amongst each other to say, but this week, we're looking even more about how we're talking amongst each other. What is your confession? What is your doctrine? What is your creed, so to say? What is your creed of your faith when you're out amongst other believers, when you're out amongst the world and they begin to give you their belief systems about how one can be made right with God? Do you stand firm that you believe that there is only one faith, one Lord, and one baptism? As I was preparing on Friday and, and praying over this passage, I got on the internet. If you ever need sermon material, get on the internet. As I started scrolling down Facebook, lo and behold, I was troubled that on multiple different occasions, I faced different posts from professing believers who were in excitement about Pride Month. They said, love always wins. This is complex confusion for the mind. How you can profess that you hold the doctrine of the local New Testament church and yet in return post this chaos. Even more statistics were given uh, in Google. I Googled the statistics for the beliefs of professing Christians of our day. Statistics say that 66% of professing Christians believe that there are many ways to God. 66%. 48% in the poll said that 
God receives worship from all religions. Much confusion. This is why Paul is getting to the point that we are not unified with people who do not hold to the creed of the local New Testament church. They are not a part of us. When he says one body, he means one body unified in these beliefs. There are no sub-parties. There are no distant relatives. There is no stepchildren. There is only children to the Lord. So he says one body. But the confusion goes on, really. It's a massive influx of confusion about people who have developed their own belief system about what it means to get to God. I guess you could say that in 4 through 6, Paul sets the record straight for the local New Testament church on what exactly you should believe. Really, even more. Verses 4 through 6 proclaims the exclusivity of the gospel. We live in a day and age where the world proclaims that they, we should be inclusive. The gospel is exclusive. Now, you can be included in whatever inclusive group, group you're in, but you can't be in part of your inclusive group and be a part of the local New Testament church. It is exclusive to those who give this confession. By the way, this is does not to say that you can be a Christian and a part of a different church. Let me further clarify. The confession that Paul gives here in verses 4 through 6 is the confession of every true Christian. Every true Christian. If you truly place your faith in the Lord, this is the true confession of us. You know, even if you to continue on, to, to make you realize how connected and how deep these seven ones that Paul gives us here is connected to our faith. Wavering on in or any side could cause a massive collapse of our faith. If we are to say that God is real, if we're to say that the God of the Bible that we read about is real. Then his confession of himself is that he is the one true God and there is no other gods. Matter of fact, when you read in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4 and verse 35, he says, Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God, and there is none else beside him. In verses number 39 of Deuteronomy Chapter 4, he says, Know therefore this day, and consider it in thy heart, that the Lord, he is God, in heaven above, and upon earth beneath, and there is none else. You see, our confession that there is but one God destroys modern religion. If our confession but there is but one God, polytheism falls out the map. If we confess that there is one God, the God of the Bible, then Islam falls out. Then Buddhism falls out. Then Joseph Mormon falls out. You see, the confession that we make here, it is our confession that naturally excludes false religions of the day. 
It causes us to have to stand against the, the preachings of the world. Even more than this, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 15, he said, for the Lord our God is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the, uh, lest the, anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. And this is to say that our God is a jealous God, but he is jealous for his worship. Even more to say this, in Deuteronomy, the Lord was speaking to his people. He, he said, I don't take lightly to you turn into false idols, to look into these false deities and worshiping them. But even more for us today, if God looks poorly about where we turn our attention and where we turn our dedication to, how much more uh, does he look down upon us making a publication, professing Christianity and saying there are many ways to God? You see, the connection of these seven ones is the centrality of the local New Testament church. It is who we are. There is only one God. If there's only one God, and this is our confession, maybe I should say since there is only one God. But if our confession is that there is only one God, then it is also to go what? Even further to say that this one God has revealed himself to us in his word. If we're to say that this one God has revealed himself to us in his word, it is also to say that there is no other revelation needed. It is also to say that no other writing is true that proclaims that it is a revelation from him. It also goes on to say that your opinion is not needed about how you get to him. You see, it is all intertwined together. And if we confess that this is his word, God's confession is that Jesus Christ is his son and that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, when we profess that he saved us, then what right does the servant have to argue with the master about his decrees? You see, it continues to go on and on and on. This creed that he puts forth here for us in the, uh, in the local New Testament church, this creed that he puts forth, we are so anchored to it, and any wavering at all really destroys what the church is built upon. The church and this information that we have is so important that God over 1,500 years, 66 books have been preserved all throughout history, over 40-something authors, all so that we could have the correct material we need to stand upon, all so that we could have what we need to have a better understanding of who our God is, about how God has provided a way for man to be right with him through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And if he's provided this way, according to scriptures, that the only way to heaven is 
through Jesus Christ our Lord alone and His works alone, then what other works are needed to be made right with God? You see the decree here. You see the creed. You see how it's connected to every function of our faith. It does not matter. When you look at these seven ones, you find the exclusivity of the gospel. You find the exclusive message, this faith. He says, there is one faith that brings not only the condemnation, but it also brings hope. It condemns in one sense that, as I said, the exclusivity. If it is all in the finished work of Christ, how many times have we heard people say, well, you know, I, I, when we're out solving and are witnessing something, you know, I believe that I'm a good person. I believe that I try to help other people. See, the creed alone is so exclusive that their works doesn't even apply to this. It doesn't help them at all. It doesn't win their way to heaven. But our confession is that God is real. Our confession is that God's word is real. And our confession is that while you're depending on your own abilities, in one sense, it's condemning because they're looking to their self. On the other side, it's liberating because what needs to be done is already done in the finished work of Christ. But the problem is no one wants to make Jesus Christ their Lord. They want to have, so to say, security in heaven but they want to live their life according to their own desires. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to the, His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. This is another connection point to the creed. He says there is one Spirit, one body and one spirit. It is to say that one who confesses this uh, faith in Jesus Christ, the active agent that regenerates them, the active agent that brings them to life is the one and only Holy Spirit. But this Holy Spirit, there's, there's a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit today. There is a lot of people who proclaim that they are filled with the Spirit. But you see, what Paul lines out here for us is to draw our attention to the reality. There is one Spirit. But what does the Scripture teach us about this one Spirit? What does he point out? How do we know if it is the Holy Spirit working in our lives? First, we understand on the outside when we're in sin, it is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. John chapter 14 and verse 26 says that he enlightens us of our sin. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Well, when we say that there is one Spirit, 
14.26 says, how do you know if it's the Holy Spirit? How do you know if it's the Holy Spirit working in your lives? At the last part, he says, he will bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Recognize the Holy Spirit does not teach you man's teachings. The Holy Spirit doesn't enlighten you on a new path. The Holy Spirit brings to remembrance the things that Jesus has taught to us in scriptures. These people who say, well, the Spirit said for me to do this as if it's an addition to the Word of God. There are religions today saturated in tradition because every year there's a new one man as a hierarchy of this proclaiming church who is adding to the Scriptures based on what the Holy Spirit has said to him. It's blasphemy. The Bible says that this one spirit will teach us the things that Jesus has already taught. He will bring to our memory. Even more in John 14 and verse, first John chapter, first John chapter four and verse one, John says to test the spirits. He says to try the spirits and see whether they be of God. Meaning that it is possible that you may all of a sudden have a desire and it's not a godly desire. You may have an emotion to go do something, but it may not be of God. Even further, he convicts us, he renews us, he regenerates us. As he said in chapter 2, he and you hath he quickened who were dead and trespasses and sin. This is the work of the Holy Spirit and he adds us to what? The one body, and he indwells in us, and he seals us. This is so important that when Paul was talking to the Galatians, he said in uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9, he said, listen, if somebody comes to you guys, if somebody comes to you and tries to tell you that there is another way, if he comes, someone comes to try to tell you that, that there's another work that you have to participate in in order to be saved instead of just the finished work of Christ alone. There's another work that, that you must do to be brought into this one body. He said, let them be accursed. Matter of fact, he gave a double emphasis. He said that if, if an angel came down from heaven and preached unto you another gospel, and that which I've preached unto you, let them be accursed. And then to emphasize it again in verse 9, he says, as we said before, now this wasn't a reminder 30 minutes later into the message, that this was a double down moment. He said, as we said before, now I say again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. All of this gospel is anchored in the fact that our faith, our new life has been anchored in the fact that there was one God who sent his one son and sent his spirit to convict us, the one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to convict us of our sins. And he convicted us with what? The words of Jesus Christ. 
and turned our hearts to Christ, regenerated us, remade us anew, filled us with the Spirit, and brought us back to Christ. Emphatically, what Paul is saying here, there is no other way to be saved. This confession is our creed. Even more in Romans 10 and verse 9, this is what he said. There is, uh, it says in verse number 5 here, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. Romans 10.9 says if that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Our confession is that he is Lord. Now, listen, I understand that we don't fully grasp everything that's happened in our life when we're first saved. You couldn't ask me any deep, rich truths about the Lord. All I could give to you is that I once was blind, but now I see. But I did understand this, that the day that the Lord saved me, December 28, 2008, when I woke up on December 29th, I understood that I was under new leadership. I understood that the prince and the power of the air wasn't my coach anymore. I wasn't going to go down that road. I wasn't going to listen to him lead me in that life. It is a strange thing when people begin to take the whip out and say, he's not my Lord. He is our Lord indeed. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 said, if you shall confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. It is a confession that we are now in service to another under new management. One Lord, he says. And how do we make all of this clear? How do we make all of these beliefs that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one God? How do we make this confession known to each other? He says, we make this confession known through baptism. Baptism is the outward sign of an inward change. Baptism comes after our confession of faith. Baptism is to say that I am separated. It is the representation of the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And by the way, when Paul wrote this, there was no competitors. At the time of Paul's writing, there was no such thing as infant baptism on the scene. There was no other competitors to preach their baptism. Paul says, there is only one baptism, but one. In many circumstances in early church history and even in the world today. I mean, we're lucky. We're thankful. We're blessed to live in the country in which we live. But when believers would take this next step of faith and enter into this one baptism, it would cost them their jobs. Their families would turn their backs on them. They would lose their friends. And even sometimes they would lose their life. 
even in different parts of the world today, you can read through the um, the um, the missionary society. We get a book to every month that even in specific Jewish regions or even in Muslim regions, when people take this step of faith, when they do this public stand of baptism, it can cost them their homes. It can cost them their prosperity. And even in the world today, it can cost you your life. Why? Because in the face of adversity, in the face of death, they're willing to follow the Lord into scriptural baptism to say, this is who I am. I fear today that if we had American Christianity overseas, that those Muslim regions and the Jewish regions in which this persecution is pouring out, there would be no affliction at all. You see, in those foreign nations, it's in the face of persecution that they follow this baptism. You see, they say in the mind of the Muslims, in the mind of the persecutors, it is to say if you're bold enough to follow in baptism in this region and face death, surely when you get out of the water, you are going to be preaching this very same gospel to others. We have to stop it here. But America Christianity, we see on the internet, praise the Lord, 900 were baptized today, 1,200 were baptized today, and yet I don't know the heart condition of all of them, but it is troubling to see how many of them are still living like the world who professed that they were baptized. No change in their life at all. Baptism means something. It means that you're making a claim in your life. You're standing upon uh, this creed here that you are committed yourself to the one who changed your life. Even more, what one baptism. This one baptism brings us into this new place in life. He says there is only one hope in this world. There's but one hope. He said, one hope of your calling. Meaning that when we arrive here, it is to say that at times we can encourage each other when we're downtrodden. As we get closer together, but it is also Paul's confession here that the most encouraging thing that we can tell each other, the one hope of our faith is that it doesn't end here. The one hope of our calling is that one day in the twinkling of an eye, the Lord's going to descend, the trump's going to sound, and we're going to be caught up to be with our Lord. This is the one hope of our calling. This is our common hope, the second coming of Christ. You know, it does bother me in the day and age in which we live that people have taken Christians amongst the Baptist faith, have taken the one hope that we have and caused war over it. A matter of fact, in our own faith, in our own exclusive religion that we have in Christ, in this 
faith, uh, we've kind of turned war. You know, some say, well, you know, the church has replaced, a, become a spiritual Israel. And now the church has become a spiritual Israel, you know, at the end of all these things, you know, they're called all millennials. Then it's going to happen. Then the Lord's going to return. And you, you on the other side, you post-tribulation people, you mid-tribulation people and all these different things. And they sected themselves up to this belief system. I'm personally a pre-tribulation person. Our church is a pre-tribulation church. We believe that prior to the seven-year tribulation that the rapture is going to happen. After the rapture, we'll have seven years of tribulation. Then we'll have a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. After the thousand-millennial year reign of Christ, Satan will be loosed for a season. After he's loosed for a season, we don't understand this time. Then the Lord will return. Then Satan, death, and hell all will be cast into the lake of fire. That is the pre-tribulation stands. Now, even more though, the problem is this, that we have set up war and caused chaos over one of the most exciting things we have in our faith. We all share this commonality. Our hope is that Jesus Christ is coming again. I'm not arguing with you about this. You believe he's coming? I believe he's coming. Hallelujah. If I get there before you, I'll fill you in when you get there late. So there's no reason to war about this. It is our only hope. He said, the one hope of your calling is the one hope. Notice, lastly, here in verse number six. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. The first thing we see here that Paul wants to highlight is that the one God and Father of all is absolutely above all. The first thing he wants to bring to our mind is that God is of absolute power. That he's absolutely there, that there is no power in heaven or hell that can overthrow him. There is no power on earth that can trump him. He rules over the galaxies. He rules over the earth. He knows all the stars and he calls them by name. His, his decrees still stand true. No one has ever been able to get around one of God's decrees. And the wages of sin will always be death. His decrees will always be true. He is above all. Even more, he says, it's not only that God is above all, but God is through all. This is like the Romans 8.28 of Ephesians, <laughs> that God is working in everything that is going on in our lives. Matter of fact, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 to Revelations and see that God has been weaving through the portals of time to bring about a greater glory for him. Matter of fact, I guess you could say the most evident time in history in which God was working through it all was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
When you step back and look at the situation at the crucifixion, the Lord and Savior there upon the cross, speared, beaten, whipped, his beard plucked, the crown of thorns upon his head, there he died. The Jews, I mean, the Jews thought they had brought great victory. Satan thought that he had won the great battle. Even more, the disciples thought our Lord is gone. It's over. There's nothing else to have. Kind of reminds you of Mark chapter 12 and verse number 7 when the story, the parable goes that they, the man sent his only son and they said, let us kill him and his inheritance shall be ours. This is what Satan was preaching on the day when Jesus was crucified. He has sent his only son. There's no more hope. There's no more help. There's no follow-up. We have crucified his son, and now that his son is dead, all that he has created now is our inheritance. We can rule upon the earth as the prince and power of the air, and we can live exactly how we want. Yet, through it all, God was preparing to energize the disciples in a manner in which they would never see. They had never fully understood what it meant until they experienced resurrection power in their life. The power that they experienced, the energizing they experienced when they seen the resurrected Lord, it turned a brother who denied him, his family who thought he was crazy, Thomas the doubter, Peter the denier, they began to see this resurrection power. And by the time you make it to the middle of Acts, the only thing they can say about them is these men who turned the world upside down. God was working through the death of His Son not only to accomplish the payment for our sins, but to instill in us a hope of what is yet to come. God is working through all. And even more, He says, He is in us all. One God and Father who is above all and through all and in you all. Here he reminds us of this amazing truth that I just do not know how to put into words for you. But the reality is, is that God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit abides within us. You know, on December 5th, 2020, my father died. And there was, it was kind of, it was a dark day in my own life, so to say. But it was tragic because, you know, I had become confident in who my father was. But the absence of my father shook me because I no longer had his aid. But what, what is reminded to us here in verse 6 that this God, this Father, you see, you see the relationship that happened here now? In the Old Testament, the Israelites knew God by covenants. 
they knew him as their God. In the New Testament, because of what we have in Christ, there is now a different relationship. He said, one God, yes, yes, but he's also our father. And this father, you don't ever have to worry about his death. You don't ever have to worry about the absence from his aid. You don't ever have to worry about the absence from his health. He is working through all of history, and he is in you. He is with you. He hears your cry. He hears your prayer. He is with us every step of the way. This is the creed of the local New Testament church. To pull from it, to add from it, only brings you into question. When we preach, well, there's other ways. That's not, what, that's not what the Bible says. Well, there's one God. Well, there's only one God. Yeah, we believe that there's one God. Well, if there's one God, then everything else the Bible says is true. That there's one God and that God said, I have a son. <laughs> and if he has a son, this is what his son says about this. This is what his word says about that. You, you begin to detract from any of this, the core of who we are begins to fall apart. So the second part of Paul's challenge about what it means to be a unified church, the first part was how we behave towards each other. The second part of what makes us unified is the confession of our beliefs that there is but one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, the Father of all. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to be here gathered in your word. Lord, I pray that we settle into these beliefs, that we search our own hearts, that we sharpen our minds to the great truths of your word that we understand the great importance of what it means to be unified in our beliefs. It's more than just what we say to each other and behave to each other, but it's what we say about our belief of you. Lord, I pray that you cause us to search our hearts as we grow closer together so not that we can have better friends, but so that we can bring glory to your name. Lord, we thank you that we're to bear one another's burdens, that we're to sharpen each other, Lord. I pray that you will do a work here at 4600 North Edgewood that only you can do. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. Lord, be with us as we leave this morning. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to get back here this evening. We give thanks to you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.